The Influencer's Edge is brought to you by the Invisible Influence Series. If you're ready to massively increase your sales by leveraging the power of subconscious persuasion, then make sure you text the word COMPEL to 411-321. That's COMPEL to 411-321. And if you're outside of the United States, then use WhatsApp and text the word COMPEL to 1-909-741-1321. Make sure you put in your best email address because that's how we'll deliver the goodies. Welcome to the Influencer's Edge. This is the place where you come to get the latest breakthroughs, cutting-edge insights, tools, and techniques to leapfrog over the pack in sales, persuasion, and influence. Be sure you visit our website at www.theinfluencersedge.com. And while you're there, subscribe to us via your favorite network. Now sit back, tune in, and enjoy today's episode. All right, today on the Influencer's Edge, to say we have an amazing guest would be the understatement of the decade, if not the century. Uh, This guest, Chase Hughes, is a personal friend of mine. He is a soft heart and a brilliant mind, and thank goodness he is on the good side of the force, because otherwise he would be terrifying. This guy's got some mad skills, <laughs> so I'm glad you're on my side. You're on the side of the good guys, not the bad guys. So your biography is really extensive because you're so experienced and so skilled. We're going to cut it as much as we can because there's so much to it. Chase, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. All right. So Chase is the leading military and intelligence behavior expert in the world with 20 years of creating the most advanced behavior skills, courses, and tactics available worldwide. He is the leading expert in the United States on these topics and the number one best-selling author of two books on tactical behavior skills. I've got both of these books proudly on my bookshelf. You can't see them here because I have my green screen. One of them is the Ellipsis Manual. Chase, I have to say, when I read that book, it removed my belief in free will. <laughs> <laughs> And I gave a review on Google, I said, uh, on Amazon, I said, absolutely terrifying. And also your newer book, um, The Six-Minute X-Ray. Chase teaches elite groups, government agencies, and police. Chase, are you, uh, are you a spy? Can I just ask you that? Are no. You, you have to kill me if I if, Of course, you have to say no. I'm sorry. Uh, Chase teaches elite groups, government agencies, and police and behavior science skills including behavior profiling, nonverbal analysis, deception detection, interrogation. Wow. Um, He also has his human tradecraft course, which is specifically designed for intelligence operations personnel. Come on. That's got to be some three-letter agencies that you're not allowed to talk about. So, uh, right? You're not allowed to say. (laughs) That's fine. But you developed your models of influence and persuasion working with those folks in training He's referred to as the world's leading expert by Dr. Phil. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, he has a channel along uh, with his three other experts called the Behavior Panel on YouTube. Warning, it is addictive, absolutely addictive. Chase is named in the 2020 top 40 under 40 CEOs in America. Wow, are you uh, 
an accomplished dude, best-selling author of five books on human behavior. And I may say, Chase is an excellent fiction writer. Do you want to give the name of your books? Yeah, there are two books that are now out in a series called Phrase 7. And the second book is called Belgrade Archer. And they're both about mind control. Well, (laughs) I read them both in one, in well, each one I read in one sitting overnight, which I don't do. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be, I hope, not just frightening, but also informative. Chase is a good guy. So, Chase, give me a little bit about how your background working for intelligence and the military has shaped your view of persuasion and influence overall. Wow. That's probably the best question I've ever been asked on a podcast. And I can say uh, definitively having access to uh, a super high security clearance and a ton of taxpayer dollars to do a lot of this research. I realized uh, pretty quickly that we were still in the terms of like developments, you know, we've gone from sending a telegram to iPhones and we were still in the telegram phase of persuasion and influence uh, back then. And it, it really opened my eyes and it scared the crap out of me, uh, understanding how many loopholes uh, people actually have. Loopholes in what sense, Chase? Just loopholes that are, it's like a, a person goes out their front door and locks their house, but three windows are permanently open and you can't shut them. No matter what, you can't shut those windows. So it's kind of like a, a loophole to where a person can be accessed or hacked into, so to speak. Oh, hmm. interesting, interesting. Now, most people's view when you talk about interrogation, I don't want. We want to get to the application towards influence and, and sales, but most people, because you have trained people in interrogation techniques, correct? Yeah. Most people, when we think of interrogation, we think of the good cop, bad cop, or just someone being slapped around and yelled at and go confess, come on, you did it, confess, or being uh, confined in a small position and that sort of stuff. These, I'm assuming, are myths when it comes to interrogation. They are. They are absolutely myths. And in all of my years, the, the best interrogators, the ones who are the top most top performing interrogators, police or military intelligence. Uh, They're the kindest people, not just outside the interrogation room, but inside the interrogation room, the level of rapport and kindness is through the roof. So in, in many instances, uh, it's kind of like you're looking at Andy Griffith when you meet these people, they're calm, composed, they're humorous. Uh, and it's never the situation where there's like face slapping or like slamming the gun down on the table and that kind of stuff. That doesn't, that doesn't actually happen No. in good interrogations. You froze a little bit, but keep going. Um, we'll see if you unfreeze. Hang on. Let me pause the recording for a second. Tracy, we're pausing because there's a free connection. Okay. So go back to what you're So, uh, go back to what you were saying. All these guys are kind and uh, and they're, they're not mean. They're, 
I've never seen a, a good interrogator that was mean. And if you really look at it, most of their behavior is a lot like Andy Griffith. They're calm, they're confident, composed, and humorous even. And that those are the best interrogators because you talk to salespeople all the time, like, oh, I work with really resistant people. Well, the people that I work with want to make internet videos of cutting my head off. Or if you're on the police, you have to talk, you're not talking someone into buying into a timeshare, you're talking them into getting convicted to go to prison for the rest of their life. So those are pretty resistant clients. Yeah. I, I would say maybe a little more resistant than uh, you might experience at like a, a Toyota dealership. <laughs> and I think at, at the end of the day, that that's what really makes the difference, that you can have the presence of confidence and authority with absolute kindness and in your heart. And that's the difference between someone thinking confidence and authority means status and social hierarchy, which it absolutely does not. And you, that's a brilliant distinction. So let's dive into that. Confidence and authority does not equal status and being high in the social hierarchy. So please explain that. Sure. So it, it may boost you up in a social hierarchy, but me being having authority and being confident does not is there's nothing inside of my behavior during that time where I'm thinking or processing anything in terms of status or hierarchy. So how do you define, because so many of the people, this is geared towards influencers and professional salespeople. How do you define confidence? How does someone get confidence if they're stuck at a certain level of their performance in sales? Most of the time, it is a lack of a feeling of safety. So confidence will come down to comfort and safety. So if you're, if you're struggling with confidence, try this for two weeks. The only goal you've got, the only goal is to, I, I'm going to go into this room. My only goal is I'm going to be more comfortable than the other person. That's it. That's all you've got to do. I'm just going to out comfort that person. But that's your only goal. And that's the first big step to start uh, to starting true, real confidence. Uh, but that implies you can read other people's comfort levels, correct? No, it just means that I'm more comfortable in my skin than the other person. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you have to read the other person. It just means that you're probably the most comfortable person in the room. Okay. Any tips on how to get there? There are a few, sure. So let's, uh, let me give you a scenario. So let's say the most expensive store that I could ever imagine is Hermes or Hermes. So they sell these uh, like leather bags and like leather stuff. Like the cheapest thing in the store is like 15 grand. Wow. For the, for the average person walking into an Hermes store, they probably can't afford almost anything in the store just to swipe a credit card and make it no big deal. So if you imagine walking into that store, knowing that you, your income is where it is, the first thing you're going to think is, oh, shit, I can't afford anything. Then you're gonna, the employees are going to look at you and say, oh, hello, but you're going to hear them differently. You're going to hear them being condescending. You're going to hear them. You're going to see different facial expressions than other people will. You're going to see a facial expression of suspicion when it's really just genuine enjoyment. Uh, you're walking around looking at price tag going, oh shit, I can't afford that. Oh my God, I can't afford that. Then a, one of, let's say a woman walks up and says, oh, what, is there anything I can help you find? 
But to you, it sounds condescending. It sounds like, oh, shit, she knows. She knows. They all know. I don't care if she has an art history major or something like that in college. She knows. She can tell. Uh, And then it just gets more and more nervous. So like you're, you're walking around and she's following you to be of service, but you think she's following you because you can't afford anything. I'm sure salespeople face this too. Uh, yeah. So often said, well, sales is about being of service, but that doesn't mean jack squat if the other person sees you as looking down on them or sees you as right. sending, even though you don't have any of that in your intent or even in your behavior. Right. So let's rewind that scenario and let's say you you're working for me and I have a card here. It's like a platinum credit card. This is just like a priority pass card, but I give you my corporate platinum card and I say, Hey, uh, Paul, I need you to run down to their May store really quick. If you could give me the most expensive briefcase that they have. I've got a client coming in. I, w- I want to make sure they have a gift, a really nice gift. So you walk into that store, the cards in your pocket and you walk in how are you going to stand? You're going to stand differently. And then when those people make eye contact, you're going to see the exact same facial expressions way differently. When she comes over to ask if you need help, you're going to hear that completely differently as if she's genuinely trying to help. You're going to view that entire situation, the identical situation in a completely different way. They're all there to help. I belong here. I have permission to be here. Everything's fine. So it's your comfort level changes what you're even seeing in other people's facial expressions. But here's the trick. No one in that store can see the card in your pocket. Nobody can see the platinum card. So in reality, confidence is all internal. It has nothing to do with what's in your pocket, what's in your wallet, what's in your bank account. They will treat you based off of you believing that that platinum card is in your pocket. So that, that applies to all confidence, and all confidence draws back to permission. It always starts with permission to behave a different way. Now, you also mentioned authority. So what is your definition of authority? Because a cop, I remember I've taken some classes, with you, and there, again, you're a brilliant teacher, and I'm able to absorb it. Some of it was like mind-blowing because you have said that human beings are hardwired to respond to authority. The famous yeah. Milgram experiment where people dressed as, it's, it's a long story. You can unpack that if you want to. But when we see the sirens going off behind us or the flashing lights of the cop car, most of us get all sweaty and we pull over without having to think it through. What do you mean by, is that the kind of authority you're talking about? Well, those are socially elected authorities. So those are authorities that we agree as a tribe. These are the people that are in charge. and. What I mean by authority is our internal behavior of authority. And authority is comprised of five individual character traits. Number one is confidence. Number two is discipline. Three is leadership. Four is gratitude. And five is enjoyment. So if you think of all of those things, so true confidence is contagious. And true authority is also contagious. So if I have enough permission, remember, it all starts with permission. If I have enough permission, I have so much permission inside of myself that I'm transferring permission to act to other people. Wow. If I have so much confidence, I'm, I'm sharing that with other people. I'm making other people more confident. If, you're, if you've ever been around somebody that's, that's looked confident, like 100% looks confident, but they make people feel small, 
That's not confidence. Right. True confidence is contagious all the time. So again, just to wrap this up for your listeners, it's confidence, discipline, leadership, gratitude, and enjoyment. You are probably one of the top five, not probably, you're one of the top five most disciplined people I know. I don't necessarily define myself. I'm getting better at being disciplined. Can you? And everyone says you have to be disciplined when you set goals and et cetera, et cetera. Please, for someone who's wildly artistic, as you know, and can always use help with discipline, how do you define discipline and what's your number one tip to getting there? Obviously, it's not a thing. It's a practice that you do. But how okay. do you define it? Yeah, I, I would define discipline as the ability to place priority on your future self instead of the present self. So the place the needs of my future self in front of my, the needs of my present self. So if we just unpack that a little bit, once we have discipline, that means I, I am able to forego something I want now for something I want in the future. And this goes down to the tiny little things that we do every day. So if you want to start a practice immediately, get your coffee ready the night before. Oh, if you have a little Keurig coffee machine, put the little pot in there, put the cup in there, get things ready for yourself. So pretend just for, try this on for a week, like pretend like you're your own butler for one week. (laughs) You are the butler of your future self. So (laughs) <laughs> All right, I'm laying out the clothes for the my the person that I'm the butler for. I'm putting the shoes there. I'm putting the thing next to the shower that he's going to need in the morning. And I will literally say out loud on a regular basis, I will say, Chase is going to love this. Chase is really going to like this. Because I'm talking about future me. I'm not talking about myself presently. Future me. And even uh, smaller things than that, just uh, take a $100 bill. And we're coming up on summertime right now as you and I record this. Take a $100 bill, stick it in the pocket of a winter coat that you're not going to be using for months. Now you're giving yourself, write a note on it. Write a note to your future self. Stick it somewhere where you're going to find it in a year or two years. And so we're starting to develop this mammalian response to our future self. And now we're developing a relationship. And the final way to get this down into the mammalian brain pause button. I can't let genius go by. You said mammalian response. And I know a lot of what you do has to do with the neuroscience because you have a degree in neuroscience from where? Some dinky rinky dink. Uh, It's a little rinky dink place called uh, Harvard. (laughs) Wow. So we're going to get into the neuroscience of influence sales in a minute. But what do you mean by mammalian response as distinct from a human response because we're all mammals, humans, but not all yeah. mammals. Not all mammals are humans. All humans are mammals. I remember that modus bonum. Yeah. I think they call it in uh, philosophy. Yeah, and so so this this whole thing. Uh, here's an example you've heard before, and I'll show you how it's mammalian. And you, we've all heard this. Like somebody's describing the reticular activating system in our brain. And so they're saying you're shopping on the internet for all these cars. You're, then you find a car that you like. Then you watch a hundred YouTube videos on that one car. You look up the interior colors, all the options. Then you go tour the car. Then you buy the car. And people are going to say, well, that's because you focused on it. Yes. But if you listen to just podcasts or just read black and white letters about that, that car, 
you wouldn't be seeing it everywhere. You're seeing it because the imagery and the emotion around it went into the animal part of our brain. It went below this prefrontal cortex, which is logic, reason, words. No words can get into the mammalian brain, period. Words mean nothing. It's like talking to your dog. It's, it's meaningless or your cat. And so what we're trying to do is force the mammalian brain to see this relationship to my future self as important. So why, why, how am I pushing it down to the mammalian brain? I leave the coffee for myself. The brain says, oh, that's interesting. Chase deviated from his normal routine. He's starting to do stuff for himself. But the next morning, we have a part of our brain called the ventral tegmental area. And right at the front of this is a little bean-sized thing called the nucleus accumbens. And this is the dopamine remembering system. Like, that shit felt really good. I'm going to look for ways to do that again. So we get to, I come downstairs in the morning. I look at the coffee maker. It's ready to go. All I've got to do is push a button, and it's ready to rock. And that I get a little dopamine. So my brain starts memorizing this pattern of prioritizing future self. And finally, since we're, we do this so much with imagery, download one of those apps that makes you look like you're 95 and ah, print, print out a I'm picture. I'm not far from it anyway, my friend. <laughs> now I'm talking to your listeners now, but you don't, you don't look that old, Paul. So if you download a, a picture of yourself, at 90 or whatever, it makes you look really old in this app, print it out and put it on your refrigerator. Put it maybe where you might be spending money where you shouldn't be spending money. Put it in places where you're visually developing a relationship with that human being. We have a hard time doing it because we have a hard time visualizing our future selves. But when it's right there in front of your face, you put it up on the wall in the kitchen or whatever, wherever you want, you're continually telling the mammalian brain, that person is important to me. So then instead of you seeing the next you know, Lexus that comes out off the line of the assembly line that you really want to get, now you're just seeing your future self, which is way more important than any other decision that you could ever make. I have heard so many people say, visualize the way you want your life to look like, visualize the way you would look like with the ideal body and that sort of thing. So you're saying that that doesn't necessarily work or... or I'm saying... It does if it's vivid and, and frequent. Vivid. So, so let's say a person has a, uh, one of those uh, vision boards. Right. I use vision boards. So with all the, like, the law of attraction and all that kind of stuff, I'm a neuroscientist, so I, kinda, I lean more towards peer-reviewed, uh, even though I don't always trust peer-reviewed. So if I, have a, if I have a vision board and there's a TV, a big TV on the wall right here in my office, and if I want a vision board, I'm going to make it a four or 500 slides long. I'm going to put it on a PowerPoint. I'm going to plug it into this thing. And all day, even if it's above my computer, off on the wall, it's going to loop 24 hours a day. If I'm in my office, my bedroom, it's looping That's on every TV. You know what? Next time we get together for lunch, uh, you're going to have to sketch that out for me because I, I don't I'll have to hire someone off our Craigslist to uh, hook it up to my DD. So we'll run all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can you'd be surprised. It's 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 on every every TV in the house. Everywhere I go, it's it's constantly running because all I'm really doing. I'm. I'm not like rewiring beliefs. I'm not doing all this fancy terminology that people will come up with. I'm training an animal. That's it. I'm just teaching an animal. 
It's a mammalian brains. I need to teach it the same way I would a dog. If I, if you could explain your goals to your dog in English, have at it, but I don't <laughs> think you can. So we're training an animal. That's it. So not to be the dead horse, referring it back to animals. So what do you think about people who write down, who write their goals down without visualizing? I will be doing this. Writing them down is great, especially for reading it every day. It puts some images in your mind, but they're not vivid. And if it's not frequent, it's not going to work. Vivid right. and frequent are the two things. I love work. this distinction you make already. This has got to do with influence yourself with reaching the mammalian brain that that and this is what i've said that people don't make decisions and this is no, nothing new people don't make decisions based on logic and facts and that sort of thing and you've got to get into the mammalian part of the brain you've got to get into the unconscious one, one more thing i want to ask you people refer to the unconscious mind i've been doing hypnosis for 30 years you're a master of hypnosis and hypnotic techniques where is the unconscious mind located in the brain there isn't one <laughs> there isn't an unconscious mind the any any part of the brain can become the unconscious mind if there's not active electricity going on there a bunch of electricity okay i want to talk about this it's not necessarily we have questions that uh, every guest submits question that they questions they suggest we ask but I know a lot about your work and you talk a lot about how humans, when they make decisions or humans run on different addictions, we're all drug addicts. This is something you said. Am I misraising you when, when I went, we're all oh. drug addicts. Now, most people would say, unless they're having fun with recreational substances as they watch and or listen to this, what the holy shit is Chase talking about? I'm not a drug addict. I, I, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't use coffee, I'm clean. What What are you talking about? And also, I want to, you to relate this to how people need to be seen in different ways. Deviant, self-pity, seen as strong, seen as important. Am I hitting the right ones? Yeah, for sure. So uh, when we talk about drugs, your brain uh, is capable of manufacturing more than most pharmacies more in a week than most pharmacies could manufacture in a month. And th that's a big deal. That's a very big deal. And the things that give us really strong pleasure chemicals are going to be different for everybody. Hold on one second. I'm sorry, Chase. Forgive me. Go ahead. No idea what I'm saying. Oh, well, we were talking about people being drug addicts. So in reality our brains run on chemicals and the human brain can make more drugs than a pharmacy and that's a very big deal but the, the drugs that make people happy the drugs that make people feel rewarded are different for everybody <clears throat> it's kind of the same neurotransmitters pretty much for everybody but the situations that make those neurotransmitters brain chemicals jump out and start flooding the brain are different for everybody so there's I've identified six big things that people thrive off of for uh, getting these neurotransmitters. And once you're able to identify which of the six a person is, and there's tons of training I have on this on my website, it's all free, uh, is once you're able to identify this, then you know the source that they're looking for. So if you meet a new person, let's, let's not make it about you, the listener. 
let's make it about somebody else. So if somebody meets a new person, one of the things they're going to do first is to see what kind of drugs they have. So they're going to poke around to see if I can get the right kind of validation that I'm looking for from that human being initially in a conversation. And you'd be shocked at how quickly this happens, usually within the first minute and a half of every conversation. Unpack that. Yeah. So let's say a person, let's, let's go through these six needs really quick. So one is significance, acceptance, approval, intelligence, pity, and strength and power. So with those six, if I'm, if I meet a, an intelligence person within the first few minutes of a conversation, depending on how good of a conversationalist I am, they're going to say, well, I went to college here, or I did my thesis on that. Well, I've been working at this company for a long time. A lot of people come to me for the advice on how to run these machines or whatever. We're going to hear that pretty quickly. So basically what we're hearing when people say stuff to make them feel more significant, more approval, more acceptance, more pity, intelligence, power, uh, those six things, what we're really hearing when they're talking about those things, they're knocking on our door and saying, hey, man, you got any of that XYZ? And that XYZ is the drug that they're looking for. And then, so let's say you're talking to a significance person which they want to be made to feel significant. They don't want to be significant. They want other people to make them feel significant. significant. Got it. So all those six things are what we want other people to help us feel that way. So in reality, when we talk to that person, let's say I'm talking to a significance person, but I give them an acceptance compliment. So they're telling me they're, they're the CEO of this company. They've written four books. They've been on TV a whole bunch. They've done all of this crazy stuff. And then I say, Wow, I bet you've got a huge social circle. You know, I bet a lot of people come to you for advice. So I'm giving them a compliment on acceptance, but they're right. fishing for significance. Right. So basically, they've knocked on my door and asked for cocaine, and I've given them a little bag of marijuana. And basically, in their head, that's what's going on. Like, I was looking for this particular drug, and I didn't actually get the drug that I came here for. So, A, we're... We're, we're losing in the conversation our ability to persuade that person. And B, we're telling that person they need to look elsewhere for neurotransmitters and they need to look elsewhere to feel good. Uh, does each one of these like pity, significance, power, do they all have different neurotransmitters or do they all, when you hit the button, release dopamine? And, and I don't know these neurotransmitters. You're the scientist. You do. Yeah, there's, they're all pretty much the same. There's one, there's one that would be a little bit different, which would be the pity. That would still release the dopamine and stuff, but it would also release some cortisol, a little bit of epinephrine maybe, uh, and maybe some noradrenaline that comes out that, that might differ from the others. But yeah, it's, we're making the person feel good. So instead of asking like what they need to be persuaded, start asking, just try this on as an experiment. What are they looking? How do they want me to see them? How do they want to be seen by other people? What are they wearing? What are they, how are they standing? How are they speaking? What are the topics they focus on? When do they raise their eyebrows during certain things? So like I'm not much of an intelligence seeking guy, which is why you had to kind of peel Harvard out of my, uh, my mouth. Uh, so like how, how is this person communicating? Like, what are the, what are they wanting to be seen as? So 
If you just take me, I don't know if is this going on video? Yes. All right. So you take me, for example, I'm wearing a polo that's buttoned up. I have a little uh, it's kind of a schoolboy military haircut. I'm very conformist. I have a little regular old watch on, nothing fancy. I'm not a fancy guy. So I'm kind of a conformity person who's driven by significance. Like yes. who the hell else would, who the, who the hell else is going to write all these damn books? And like, it, all of this is a drive for significance. So we're all somewhere on these six needs. And it's incredibly accurate if you start looking for it. Cool. All right, I'm going to go to some other questions here that I have. Okay. All right, because uh, we, you bring up so many things, I could pick your brain. So let's see. We This sort of was already taking a deep dive into the neuroscience of suggestibility, but is there more to learn about this here? We could definitely jump into deep neuroscience about suggestibility. It won't take long. All right, let's do it. <laughs> okay. So suggestibility is rooted in a part of the brain called the dorsal anterior cingulate gyrus, the DACG for short. Say that three times fast. (laughs) I'm not going to try that. So this little part of the brain, dorsal anterior cingulate gyrus, is responsible for manufacturing, well, heavily manufacturing. It's not only, its only job is not doing this, but it has many other jobs. But it manufactures a large amount of GABA. And GABA is a neurotransmitter that stands for gamma immunobutyric acid. So GABA is a chemical in the brain that I want you to think of as like the resident assistant in a college dorm, like the RA. You're holding a party out there, people playing music. They're the ones knocking on the doors like, hey, hey, we need to calm this shit down. Calm the shit down. So that's what GABA is doing. GABA is calming everything down, saying everything's okay. Don't no need to get excited. Let's let's turn the volume down on this. So GABA is a safety chemical. So the levels of GABA in the brain are directly correlated with suggestibility. So here's the co- here's the anti correlation here. So as the dorsal anterior cingulate gyrus uh, spikes up in electrical activity, there's another part of the brain right up here called the dorsal, uh, dorsal prefrontal cortex, dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. And this part of the brain is like the what do I need to worry about part. So uh, Dr. David Spiegel said it best, like if I'm an airline pilot and I'm coming in for a landing, I don't need my GABA parts. I need my worry parts turned on. I need to oh, look wow. Approaching aircraft, I need to listen to the radio control tower. I need to see if another plane's coming down. I need to check the weather. I need to see the trees down there and see what the wind is doing on on the trees. Is is there gusting going on? I need to worry about a lot. So when we need to concentrate when we're driving a car or or whatever, and I concentrate more when I have the autopilot on. I don't know if you have a like an auto driving car yet, but it's I am more nervous having that on than yeah. if I didn't. I but be. so that that's the part of the brain doing that. So people with a high degree of activity in the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, the worry, what do I need to worry about right now, part of the brain, they are uh, almost impossible to hypnotize. And the the highest degree of people with the highest activity in this part of the brain are schizophrenics, which is why uh, all the research shows that schizophrenia is a the disorder that makes you unhypnotizable, which is a little sad. So 
if going one level deeper into neuroscience. Hold on, hold on. Fascinating question. I got to pause you. Yeah. Anyone who's a hypnotist who appears on this show or anyone I meet in real life who's powerful as you are, you're so calm. See, you're so calm and laid back. People have no idea how truly dangerous you are. But my question is, can you hypnotize someone to do something against their will? 100%. 100%, I know. <laughs> yes, I know you would agree. I absolutely agree. <laughs> All right, we'll not unpack that answer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, keep going. So the second part of suggestibility on a chemical level is a higher degree of a another chemical, an acid actually, that appears in cerebrospinal fluid. And inside of the CSF, you could do a lumbar puncture or what they call a spinal tap maybe uh, in, in a person and measure the levels of this in their CSF, cerebrospinal fluid. And this chemical is called HVA or homovanillic acid. And this is another thing that you can actually take over-the-counter supplements and change your levels of GABA and HVA and all kinds of stuff. There's even prescriptions you can take for... Uh, for heartburn, and it modifies homovanillic acid inside your cerebrospinal fluid. There's a whole, we can get we can do a whole episode on how to wait, wait, are you saying, induce susceptibility. Are you saying if I take Tagamet, it'll make me more hypnotizable? Uh, Tagamet might be on the list. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think uh, Tagamet targets an alpha subunit receptor site. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> Don't test his knowledge, folks, because he knows. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of exams. Wow. Okay. So that will be suggestibility. And and what we really think about with suggestibility is a person who is naturally open to the world and, and naturally feeling safe in the moment. So it kind of goes back to safety. A person who's truly confident is more hypnotizable. That's why you'll hear street hypnotists say, oh, these big jack dudes who are supremely confident they could whoop anybody's ass on the street, they will drop into trance immediately because they feel safe. People with insecurities are harder to hypnotize because their dorsal medial prefrontal cortex is active. What do I need to worry about? And the people with social anxiety, the same part of the brain, but they're not worried about what do I need to worry about? They're thinking, how am I being perceived? Got it which makes them harder to hypnotize because they're worried that part of the brain lights up because they're worried about how they're being perceived during the hypnosis. You said that suggestibility ties in with the feeling that you're comfortable in the world, which going back to how you defined authority and comfort, you have to be the most comfortable person in the room because that allows you to lead people into feeling comfortable themselves. You're not even using the word rapport. You're using comfort as opposed to rapport. Yeah. What's your distinction between the two? Or does it matter? Uh, if, it's, if, it's, if, it's, if it's not a useful question, we can. We can yeah, I don't know if it's, uh, I don't know if there's that big. Rapport talks about connection with another person. I think rapport might be a byproduct of, of really good comfort. Okay. Let's dive into what does a reli uh, reliable model look like for influence? You won't like it. I, uh, I won't like it personally or, or? No, you won't like it uh, based on what you teach. Oh, okay. But this is my opinion uh, again. So I, I would look at it in four levels of a 
Chase Hughes's hierarchy of influence, we can call okay. it. So level one, we have electricity. And this is our thoughts. So if I'm, a commu- I'm communicating to you and I say pink elephant, boom. I produced electricity in your brain and I directed where it went. I directed it right to the visual cortex in the back of your head. I get it. So now I'm influencing electricity. The second thing I'm influencing on the level two of this pyramid is chemicals. If I say pink elephant has a little baby and that baby's very sick and she's trying to take care of this baby, now I'm creating some emotion in there. Now I'm getting down into this chemical level. So now we're only on level two. So the best persuaders, uh, uh, many of the best persuaders and even sales trainings get to level two. Level three is life scripts, life scripts. So what has this person memorized throughout their life, driving the car, going to work, having conversations, uh, holding a drink in their hand, ordering a drink at the bar, paying for something at a restaurant, sticking a credit card into a little machine at, at a restaurant. All of these little things that our brain says, oh, he's doing this a whole bunch. So I'm just going to memorize this and make it into an app. So I walk into a Chili's or something like that. And my brain says, oh, Chase has been here before. I know this is, I'm going to run the restaurant app. So it's looking at the menu, doing all these little repetitious things that I don't need to, I don't need to think about because my brain's got it memorized. If I know that a person is running a script or if I can make them borrow behavior from a script, then I'm getting into deep level influence. For example, uh, here's an example I give at my seminars all the time. The first day that people come in the room, I have a fragrance bottle. It's not beside me right now, but I have a fragrance bottle that's made to smell like the smell of Play-Doh. Not joking. So as they're coming into the room, this is the second day of the seminar. They're walking into the room and I have the little microphone thing on or one of those little face mic things. And as they're coming in with a very teacherly tone, I'll be like, okay, okay, everybody, let's take our seats. Let's take our seats. Age regression there. You're already starting to get an age regression. So I'm doing age regression and I'm making their brain borrow from a script of where they would sit in school. And then people, people are raising their hand to ask questions. I was like, who told you to raise your hand? Nobody. Because you're borrowing from a script. You're taking notes, you're sitting in, you're borrowing from college, high school, or elementary school. Uh, So I've done things to make you borrow from a lifetime script. So sometimes it's great for me to push you into a certain script, but sometimes it's it's useful for me to break you out of all scripts. So if you're at a Starbucks, the barista at the Starbucks is running a script in her head that says, take the order, grab the Sharpie, write the name on the cup, misspell it. Uh, hand it down here, charge them some money and and tell them to have a good day. So she has this repetitive process. So if I go up to that barista and I say, man, I can't believe this weather outside. It's supposed to rain later today. She hears this bullshit all day long. So my words are pushing her further into that script because I'm telling her brain, you've heard this before, do the normal response. So if I can tell her brain, I have not heard this before, Now I'm breaking her out of a script and I'm generating a tremendous amount of focus. So if I go up and I say something that's outlandish or I do something that's not expected, her brain says, oh shit, the app does not have information for this behavior. I need to turn the app off and pay more attention. During that little window of attention, we could do all kinds of stuff. 
but that's only level three of the pyramid. Hold on. That doesn't conflict with anything I teach. That's a pattern interrupt and pattern right. interrupts create confusion and that creates a window of suggestibility. Milton Erickson said in virtually any technique I use, there's a confusion. So I'm, I'm yeah. four by four with you there. Good. So level four of the pyramid would be ancestral scripts. So we have life scripts, and then we have scripts that our ancestors jabbed into us without our consent. And these follow a couple of guidelines, and it's a four-part guideline. Focus when it's appropriate. So like when something's brand new, like that barista, focus when something stands out. That's number one. These are in order, by the way. That's number one, most important. Next one is authority. Obey perceived authority figures. Whether they're real, just, or unjust, our brain does not make a distinction between those. Obey perceived authority figures. A million years ago, if you go back and to a tribe, obedience to the, the tribal leader and disobedience meant you, you're either dead or they're going to grab your baby and throw it off a cliff. That's exactly right. what happened. Right. So it, you're done if, if you disobey the tribal leader. So number three, we have focus and we have authority. Number three is tribe. Do what the tribe is doing. If people in your tribe are like, oh, I'm going to put a bunch of brass rings around my neck and stretch it out, you're going to be like, sounds great. Sounds like a good idea. I'm going to, I'm going to do that too. And there's, a, there's a million studies on this uh, that show that we will just automatically conform if three or more people are doing something. So focus is first, authority, and then do what the tribe is doing. And then emotion. And this is repetitive behavior of the ancestor. So like I heard something, I'm walking past a bush and I hear a stick snap. That, that needs all my focus. I need to identify, is this a threat or is this a, a valuable item? Is it a rabbit that I can eat or is it a tiger that's going to kill me? So those are the ancestral scripts. So if I can target and I can use something in my language that makes you feel that fear of, or makes you feel tremendous focused, makes you hyper-responsive to authority, makes you hyper-responsive to tribal behavior, or triggers repetitive ancestral scripts like hunting and looking for berries and things like that. That's why you see things that stand out, even if you're driving down the road and there's billboards, if something stands out that doesn't look like all the others, it attracts your attention. Because that's how we identified edible plants and animals in the woods. So they're hacking that one little piece, which isn't really enough. But that would be kind of the hierarchy of influence and then the, the tribe. So I, what, I, what I meant was when I said you might disagree with me, at the top of the pyramid, that little top piece, that insinuates that linguistics or just the linguistic patterns are the least important. They're, they're, they're on the pyramid, but I think they're the least important because it was the, the most recent thing to develop for us. There is no dedicated language part of the human brain. We have one for smell, taste, visual. We do not have a part of the brain that's dedicated to language. Wait, hang on just a second. So people like Noam Chomsky have said that language is hardwired into the brain. We're hardwired for grammar or syntax or didn't he say something like that, that, that grammar and syntax is hardwired or did he not say that? Or am I getting it totally wrong? He might have he said that as an opinion, but the recent developments with PET scans and fMRI have proven right. that incorrect. The two, the two areas of our brain that, that carry our language parts are the Broca's area and the, Wernicke's, and the Wernicke's area. 
one for talking, one for listening. And if those get damaged, we're screwed. But those aren't hierarchical pieces of the brain. So they haven't developed over time. So the reason that we're born with body language is because the ancestors have been doing it for a bajillion years. So if this is like human evolution here, like a foot is human evolution, less than one thousandth of a millimeter is how long we've been speaking actual language. Right. So it's pretty new. So the more here, let me put it this way. The further back in time you could go and still influence people, the more effective it would be. So if you went back a million years, you would not speak the language. But if you were confident, you had the authority, you had the confidence, the discipline, leadership, gratitude, enjoyment, all the stuff we're talking about, even if you spoke and they could not understand you, they would hear the conviction in your words and you can influence people. That's, that's what I mean when I'm saying like the further back in time it would work, the more effective it is today. I don't see that as contradicting anything I teach. I think it's well, good. It's complimentary. I don't think it's contradictory at all. Good. Although it's time to end the interview. No, I'm kidding. You're fantastic. So we've gone to that. We've talked about the hierarchy of influence, right? That's what you just talked about. I do want to rewind just a second and ask you, what is the difference? I've read a lot in terms of healing people about generational trauma. You're not talking about uh, that's different than ancestral scripts yes but that is actually just within the last few years absolutely proven in peer-reviewed research in neuroscience right there's a wonderful book called it didn't start with you i don't know if you're familiar with that book at all but it talks about healing people who've gone through a lot of generational trauma and that they're actually picking up life memories of life events from their past generations who've gone through trauma it's a fascinating book i strongly recommend it all right, now we're going to get into the real scary stuff. <laughs> All right. Um, what is Avery? Avery is a mental program that I developed uh, using hypnosis and some other techniques that basically puts an alter ego inside of a human being, and you can program that alter ego to do whatever you like. Hold on a minute. If you, if there are children or young adults present, leave the room. <laughs> Let's take a deep dive. So okay. it's creating alters. We're going to break this up into pieces so you can define what an altar is and get them to do virtually anything you like. I'm assuming for our purposes, we just want them to buy, <laughs> but you mean anything like right. uh, there's, I remember an episode of David Blaine who I think is he's highly edited and probably I don't want to get, get a lawsuit. David Blaine happens to be watching this. I don't think he is. He did one where he hypnotized someone or did some kind of other influences on him to get the guy to pull a trigger and to shoot someone. I think that was Darren Brown. Excuse me, Darren Brown. I take it back. It was not David Blaine. Sorry, David Blaine. It was Darren Brown. My apologies. All right. Are you talking about something like that? Yes. So that would be maybe the preschool to the preschool level of of what I'm talking about. Uh, Unpack as much as you feel comfortable giving to the public. So an alter is not another person. Even if the person has dissociative identity disorder, it's not another human. It's one freaking brain. And people 
all over the world are saying like, oh, well, Stephen, a little Stevie lives in there and he's six years old. No, he doesn't exist. That's not a human. This is not a fragment of the brain that's taken over. This is just the brain shifting little directions. The only time a person can be what's called dual bodied or dual brained is if the connective tissue between the two hemispheres gets severed. And it's called the corpus callosum. That gets cut. Then, then one hand can start slapping and punching the, the, the actual person, like have its own brain and mind. And the logic side always kind of starts winning over the emotion side. Super crazy. That's when we have dual personality. That's a real dual personality. So dissociative identity disorder uh, is, is not two people. It's not two people in a body. It's a disorder because it ruins that person's life. So that's the reason we call it a disorder. So this book is called the DSM. This is the manual to diagnose mental disorders. I'm in there. It's the most expensive book. My sister said I'm wacko NOS, not others otherwise specified. Yeah, I think that's, uh, oh, yeah, it says uh, Paul Ross right here. (laughs) Page 515. Um, So in reality, what we're really looking at with a disorder, a disorder, is something that's ruining your life. So if I have a person with an eating disorder, who's let's just make this funny and lighthearted. She's addicted to cheesecake and can't stop eating cheesecake. And I put an alter ego in there that every time she grabs the fridge to eat cheesecake, the alter ego starts taking over and becomes the disciplinarian for her. It's still her. It's still the same brain. So now, six months down the road, here's how Avery actually works in the long run. Six months down the road, this person's been taking over and then changing her choices. So now all these, you know how we say neurons that fire together, wire together. All of those neurons that have been rebuilding themselves aren't in Avery's head. They're in my client's head. So now she, this, this one person, she has like a coach or a disciplinarian or drill sergeant, whatever you want to call it, that takes over at critical moments to start rebuilding habits and rewiring the neuronal pathways. This is, so my pushback here, just as an example, not a pushback, but a different push, push. I've got no ego. No, no, I'm not trying to put it. That's a bad metaphor. So there's so many examples of people going to hypnotists and saying, I can't stop eating things that are bad for me. And they use suggestion after a couple of sessions, the person develops better habits and they never go back to the old ways of doing it. They're not creating an alter. Something is is going on there and it works. We know that hypnotherapy and hypnosis works. It's been clinically validated. So I go to the work of creating an altar as opposed to not doing some hypnotic sessions and getting people. I'm not trying to really chase them. Just totally agree. All right. So, Um, so the power of Avery is a thousand fold of that. So I would never use Avery for cheesecake unless somebody paid me what I charged for Avery to, to stop them from eating cheesecake, which is a a ton of money for most people. Um, so with Avery, I can control heart rate inside of a fight in the middle of a fight. I can maintain a heart rate under 70, under 70, a respiratory rate, adrenaline release. I can change that person's focus, uh, cognitive states. And it's not like, uh, hypnosis. Hypnosis is psychological 
and Avery is physiological. So the way that I create Avery is a physiological change that happens over the course of about three to four days. I could see, and I could see how this would be useful, particularly for people in the military who have to stay calm under some pretty deadly situations. So if you don't stay calm, if you don't stay focused, if your adrenaline is too, you you probably need some adrenaline to survive in those situations. But if it's spiking all over the place and you're not paying attention, you're going to wind up getting killed. Yeah. And I, I, I did train my first professional fighter just a few months ago and, and use Avery on that. And that was, I was working with Roy Jones Jr. Who's one of the goats, maybe the goat of boxing of all time. And I got to sit at that fight. And if you go back and watch this fight, uh, I don't who's know if fighting? I'm Who's he fighting. I don't know. I don't know the opponent's name. The opponent probably doesn't know it either after what beat him into a... Yeah, it was bad. But if you go back and watch the fight, the commentators are saying, I've never seen a person... He, he's not making facial expressions. I don't know if he's okay. He's not blinking. Uh, he's not breathing fast. He goes into the corner. He's acting like a robot. He looks like a Terminator. And these Showtime uh, commentators are, are commenting on this guy's behavior. And I'm thinking like, wow, this is incredible. I've never, I didn't know what was going to happen. So I'm up at the, on the second level as the team doctor. And uh, I'm just watching this fight. Just, I didn't know what was going to happen. And it was, it was incredible, incredible stuff. Most of the time when I get hired to build an Avery inside of a person, it is usually confidence, uh, discipline, and they just want that stuff just jammed in there to where they're not going to have to just, change daily habits and stuff on their own, that Avery will kind of take over and do that stuff for them. Yeah, I can see how that would be a pretty expensive, uh, not expensive, a well worth uh, investment and how that would be only for VIPs, like executives and, and people who really need, need to be competitive. Yeah. So, wow, you just... <laughs> I feel like my brain is going to explode. I don't know what part of the brain is doing that. That's a metaphor, not literally true. You've just given, uh, and I want to say to the audience, Chase has just given a sliver of what he knows. He knows a lot. I want to ask you a personal thing. This is about something that happened between two of us. When I first met you, it's maybe, I don't know, four years ago? How long has it been? Four, five? Yeah, about four, four, five years, probably. You track, as I recall, you tracked me down. <laughs> I did. You did. You did track Stalker, me. full stalker status. Uh, full stalker, but uh, we won't get into why here. We met subsequently, maybe three years ago at a Thai restaurant. And I remember getting up from the table to go to the bathroom, but all my valuables were out on the table. My watch, I took off my rings, I had my wallet out on the table, my phone. I just went to the bathroom. I didn't recall doing it. I came back and went, how did all my stuff get there? <laughs> so <laughs> did you do something to me or is that just a, I was picking on your comfort or what happened there? I think you just felt comfortable. Was, was that maybe it? it was, maybe it was just the comfort was so contagious uh, that you just wanted to put your stuff on the table. But uh, I will tell you maybe one more detail offline. Yeah. Oh, Okay. Excuse me. All right, Chase, this has been fantastic. I'm sure we're going to have you back. Uh, uh, this, ladies and gentlemen, this is an episode you're going to want to watch and listen to multiple times. We just Chase has just dropped so many gold nuggets here.
Can I drop one more, Paul? Oh, of course. So when it comes to influence, there's only six things that you're leveling up or down with influence. Only six. Guarantee it. And Paul has never heard these things before, to my yeah. knowledge. Yeah. So you can use this these six things as a planning tool, a training tool, or an autopsy. So like a sales call didn't go very well, which one of the six was really low. And you only need three of these, just three of these to get really powerful influence. So here they are. Number one, focus. Number two, suggestibility, connection, openness, expectancy, and which means a person can uh, visually and vividly predict what's going to happen next. And finally, compliance. Those six things all you need. So if you think of extreme experiments like the Milgram experiment, which we, we don't have time to go into today, there was no connection, there's no openness, and there's no expectancy whatsoever. The people have no idea what's coming next, but focus is there, suggestibility is there, and compliance through the roof. Just those three things led to the Milgram experiment. So imagine if you can get all six, but all you need is three. Yeah, people talk a lot about compliance. Someone once said to me, I don't give a damn about rapport. I only care if rapport serves to get people compliant. Uh, and I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. So many people are busy aiming at rapport, but it's just a tool to get people to compliance. I think responsiveness is more important than rapport, and we'll leave it at that. Chase, if people want to get in touch with you, if they're high rollers and want to learn Avery, I don't know if you have a screening process to see. They're at the right side of the force. and, and We definitely gonna, do. They're not going to put it to ill use. We actually have an AI that screens people for that. What? Wait, I'll tell you. I was going to end the interview, but you have an artificial intelligence that screens people. Did you write it? No, it was developed by a company called ClearSpeed, based in California. ClearSpeed. So I don't want to get into it. I'm going to get ahead. I completely dive into this. <laughs> if people want to contact you and find out more about your seminars and and everything else, the wealth of information and practical tools you bring to the field, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, just Google Chase Hughes or go to chasehughes.com. And as one final quote, I'm going to leave, leave your viewers with one final quote. To sum up everything that we talked about today, I'm going to give you a quote from a very wise man named Paul Ross that I heard when I was a very young man, Thanks. Uh, just, just about the time I started learning to shave. And Thanks. As maybe a little later than that. I'm but, a geezer uh, for sure. I know I'm a geezer. <laughs> But it all goes back to evolution, and it, it, Paul probably doesn't remember saying this. Maybe he does. Maybe you do. But it is, this is the quote that really changed my aims in developing interrogation programs, and I have never told you this before. I'm telling you this on camera so other people can see your reaction. Uh, it's not about what people say they want. It's about what people respond to. Correct. And that is the root of all of my training. And it all goes down to that to that one quote. Wow. Thank you. I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah. The Influencer's Edge is brought to you by the Invisible Influence Series. If you're ready to massively increase your sales by leveraging the power of subconscious persuasion, then make sure you text the word COMPEL to 411-321. That's COMPEL to 411-321. And if you're outside of the United States, then use WhatsApp and text the word COMPEL to 
741-1321. Make sure you put in your best email address because that's how we'll deliver the goodies. Thank you for tuning in to the Influencer's Edge, where you get the latest breakthroughs, cutting-edge insights, tools, and techniques so you can leapfrog over the pack at sales, influence, and persuasion. Remember to visit our website at www.theinfluencersedge.com to enjoy even more great episodes like this one. We look forward to seeing you again on the Influencer's Edge Show.